your heart beats about 2.5 billion times in the average lifetime. And it always is pushing millions of gallons of blood to every part of your body. And this steady flow carries with it oxygen and a host of other essential things that you need in order to keep yourself alive. It's kind of amazing given the heart's never-ending workload that it performs so well for so long for so many people. But it can fail. It can be brought down by a poor diet, a lack of exercise, smoking, infection, and, and many other things. It certainly goes without saying, doesn't it, that heart health is essential to physical life. Many of you this morning, and I've heard your testimony personally, have come to experience the reality of just how important the health of your heart is all about. But you know, if you read the Bible very carefully, you'll find that heart health is not only a physical issue, but it's also a spiritual one. And that's why I called Dr. James this morning in chapter 5, and he's going to actually give all of us a spiritual EKG, as it were. He's going to hook us up to the monitor of God's Word, and he's going to let us look at our true spiritual heart condition before him this morning. And he's going to do that in his typical wisdom literature kind of antithetical style of contrasting and comparing two things. And he's going to do that by comparing two kinds of heart. You can see them in the text. One in James chapter 5, in verse 5, where he reads, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. I'm going to call that the diseased heart. The other kind of heart he mentions down in verse 8, if you look at it, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So I call that the devoted heart. And, and so here's what James wants you to do this morning. Here's what the EKG is all about. He wants you to say, which heart do you have? What is your real, true heart condition? And I say that because, listen, James has told us, and this isn't the first time in his book that he's talked to us about your heart condition. Remember James 1, 26, way back when we started? It says it's possible that religious people can deceive their own hearts. Let me say it to you this way. It's possible that you have a very serious and perhaps even fatal heart condition and you don't even know it. In fact, you've talked yourself out of believing that that kind of heart problem could be yours. See, here's what James says. You could deceive, you could have a deceived heart this morning. He also mentioned it just recently in chapter 4 and verse 8 where he says, here's what you need to do. You need to purify your hearts, you double-souled. So you see, listen, you could have a deceived heart and you could have a defiled heart. That's why you need to purify it. So this morning you came here and you probably thought to yourself that maybe my heart's pretty good spiritually. That I don't see my heart as deceptive. I don't see it as defiled. And James says, listen, let me hook you up to the monitor this morning and let the vital signs come out. Let you have the readout. You can see it for yourself because James wants us to know that a non-fiction faith We've been talking about that. A true faith, one that is real and living and active, see, is demonstrated by a spiritually healthy heart, especially when it comes to money and suffering. Those are the two things that we're going to talk about and how you can gauge your spiritual heart this morning. See, Dr. James wants each one of us 
to have a heart exam. He wants us to unpack in our own life which kind of heart, disease, or devoted we have. So let's look at them and we'll unpack them one at a time. The little framework in verses 1 through 6 ties it into the previous lesson because the first thing he says is come now in chapter 5 verse 1 take a look there and then draw a line imaginary or with your pen or pencil this morning to 413 because these two paragraphs start with the same uh, encouragement or invitation come now 413 5 1 come now he also does it in the word behold behold in 4 5 4 and also 5 9 because he wants you to get that these two passages go together. And he went pretty strong after people in the previous text, as we talked about last week, about making plans without God. And this morning, listen, he's going to give the most harsh and severe words of the entire epistle, epistle in these first six verses. You know why? Because he's going to come after one of the most difficult things for us to get a hold of in our lives. And that is money. See, in James' congregation, there were people who were day laborers. In other words, they went to work every day hoping to be hired. And the way that they existed and made their money was getting someone to hire them each and every single day. They were poor. They didn't have a lot. And in the passage, there were people in his community that were abusing the day laborers. They were taking advantage of them. He calls it fraud. See, they were really, really rich people and they were taking advantage of really, really poor people. And here's what James says, beware. And he has his harshest condemnation for rich oppressors. In the text, the rich people are not Christians. In fact, it's a literature term. It's called apostrophe. And when you use it, it's, you're speaking to those who are present about those who are not. And so he's speaking to his readers who are the ones being abused about the rich people in their community that are taking advantage of them. Now watch. He does not in the text. Talk to these people who aren't in the congregation. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't tell them that you better get your heart right. Because they're not believers. They're people who are abusing his people. And taking advantage because they have position and money and power. But instead of telling them to change. Here's what he warns them of. Listen. He warns them about coming judgment. He warns them about the dangers of loving money. And so he says very personally to these rich people, here's what he talks, watch the pronouns, ready? Your riches, your riches, 5-2. Your garments, 5-2. Your gold and silver, 5-3. Your flesh, your fields, your hearts. He, he's indicting them and he's as if he is in a courtroom and he is like Matlock or Perry Mason. I, that won't make any sense to young people. But these lawyers, right? Right? These, and he's building up the evidence. See, he's building up. See, you did this and your money, your garments. Look at the clothes you wear. Look at the money you have. Look at all the things you have. And then you take from these poor people. And he's building a case against them. And the last thing he says is, you know where all this comes from? You know where this love of money and this greed and the coming judgment on your life comes from? It comes from your hearts. It's the last thing on his list, but it's the first in importance. See, listen to me. Your unchanged heart is demonstrated by the way that you handle your money and you value people. And because of it, it is leading you into a path that is headed toward judgment. See, the diseased heart 
is evidenced by the way that we use our money. Look at the terms he uses over and over in this first paragraph. You, you, you are rich. Your riches, your garments, your gold and silver, your treasure. You have lived in luxury. You are self-indulgent. You see how he just builds up the terms and the vocabulary? Here's why. Here's why he goes over it. Here's what's true. Because they did not understand the danger. Hear me. Let, look up here and think as if warning signs and bells and whistles are going off. James says you don't understand the danger of wealth. You ever watched Fiddler on the Roof? Remember that? Again, I'm probably telling how old I am. But remember Tevye? Remember Tevye? He, he's the main character. And, he, and he's always having a dialogue, sometimes with the audience and, and, and mostly with God, various stages of his life. And so he's very poor and he doesn't have much. And so toward the beginning of the show, he has this dialogue or this conversation with God. And he asks him, you know, would it be so bad if I were a rich man. And he says, all the delights and all the benefits of being rich, and he tries to convince God, I wouldn't have to work hard, he says. I could have a nice house, big house, in the middle of town with a tin roof and actual wood on the floor, he says. He says, I'd have all the food I wanted, and my wife would have servants, and she'd be arguing with them all the time about how they're preparing things. He says, everybody, all the men in the community would come and see me. And he says, and they would ask my counsel and they would think I'm so wise. And, he's, and then he goes on to say, it wouldn't even matter whether I was right or wrong about what they asked me. Because when you're rich, they think you know. <laughs> and the song ends with these last lines. He says, Lord who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man. You see, you know what Teddy said? You know what he does? He, it's, he sees all the delights of being rich, but not one word in the whole song about the dangers. See, he didn't see it. James does. Do you? Do you see the danger in it? Listen to the words he says. Look, listen to what James says. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. See your gold and silver. See the words? rotted, moth-eaten, corroded, corrosion. Does that sound familiar to you? It did to James. You know why? Because he got it from his brother, his half-brother, Jesus. You remember what Jesus says? Listen to this. See if the echoes don't come into your mind. Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Jesus' words, Jesus' warning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, what? Yes, and, and, and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for your treasures in heaven where moths, moths don't eat it and, they don't, and, the, and the rust doesn't corrupt and the thieves can't break through and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, remember what he said? Look at verse 5. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. You see, he's using all those words that Jesus word. He's echoing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Here's why. Here's what Jesus says. Because where your treasure is, what? There your, yes. You know what? This is the EKG. See, your attitude and your use of money is one of the most important spiritual EKGs that you could ever take. Jesus knew that the location of your treasure is a heart examination. You see, the rich people in the passage were failing the heart exam test. They didn't realize 
that what they were doing to other people and not doing for other people with their money was that important. God gets so strong in this text that he tells them that there is a great reversal coming. It's, it, they said they're hoarding up all their money by defrauding people, all their treasure. But God says, you know what? What you're really doing is you think you're saving your treasure, but what you're really building up, and he uses the same word, you're building up a treasure of judgment. See how God is, it's like an oxymoron. You think you're saving all this treasure by using your money selfishly, but what you're really treasuring up is my wrath in the day of judgment. In verse 6 he says, and you have murdered. You have handled people so wrongly, it's like you murdered them. He says, but truthfully, you know what's happened? You think you've murdered them, but you know what happened? You're setting yourself up, listen to this, for a day of slaughter. You see the reversal? Saving up treasure, but treasure of judgment. You've murdered, but you're going to be murdered. You're going to be slaughtered, he says, God says. See how serious the warnings are about how we handle our money where does it come from? Where does the wrong view of money, the wrong use of money, the self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyles, where does it come from? He says in verse 5, the first kind of heart, a fatted heart. <laughs> you have fattened your hearts, he says. CHD is coronary heart disease. The official word for it is atherosclerosis. It comes from fatty deposits on the walls of your arteries of your heart. And when you get those built up enough, it begins to restrict the blood that flows to the muscle of your heart so that you can live. Doctors say, and I quote from Harvard a Medical Journal, lifestyle is huge when it comes to heart health. Listen to this. 80% of all heart disease is preventable. In other words... If you would just listen to the cautions and the dangers of it and, and not put that in your heart, in your, in your body, you could prevent that. See, here's what God's saying. See, if you would listen to me about money, if you listen to me about your finances, if you would really invest in what matters in the treasures in heaven and the kingdom of God, see, you could prevent spiritual heart corrosion and disease taking place in your own life. I read an article this week that said, seven ways to keep your heart healthy. Exercise most days. See the doctor regularly. Oops. Watch your diet. Minimize your stress. Don't smoke. Don't drink much alcohol at all. And get a lot of good sleep. Now those don't seem that hard. Really. I mean, all right, the exercise part does. <laughs> right? But they seem simple. They seem like anybody could do them. Here's the question. Why don't we? James would say, don't hoard. And that's the word in the text. Don't hoard your money. You know why? Because when you do, it rots. That's the word. Your, your riches are rotted. That's what he says. Don't make things of earth your treasure. Don't let money be. Don't become with your money self-indulgent. And so everybody, okay, Pastor Walker, I get it. See, I don't speak on money very often. When I do, you say, oh, Pastor Walker. All right, where, where do we draw the line? So you start asking questions. Well, all right, how many cars should I have? What kind should they be? How big 
of my house should I live in or the apartment I have? How much of money should I put in my clothing budget? And see, you want to draw lines. And there are draw lines to be drawn. And perhaps we can draw them different statuses in life and things that we have. We can draw them in different places. But see, that's not really what James is about. Because you have to draw the line in your heart. And that's the problem. See, it's a fatted heart. See, it's a, it's a mindset. It's a framework of your life. See, what James says is this. See, you don't have the right view of money because you don't have the right kind of heart. He's not looking for some external changes or some sort of reformation of your fine. Okay, this year I get it, Pastor Walker. I'm going to give 11% instead of 10%. See, that's not the point. The question is, what kind of heart do you have? You see, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, he didn't start out in life when he became a pastor with very much money. But over time, as his ministry grew and his preaching ability uh, made him famous, he became rich. Now, when he first started out, and this is English terms, he made 30 pounds a year. And then he would give away three because he tithed. He gave 10%. Not too far down the road, he made 40 pounds a year, which is a decent living. But instead of giving away four, he gave away 10. And then as he became famous and wrote books and people read him and all those things, he went from making 40 pounds a year to 1,400 pounds a year, which made him very rich. You know how much he kept from himself when he made 1,400 pounds? The same amount he made when he first started, 30 pounds. He gave away 1,370 pounds. When he died, they went through the clothes that he was wearing in his death, and he had one pound in his pocket, and that's all that he had. What's the point, Pastor Walker? Give the church everything. No. The point is, look at John Wesley's heart. See, he had a heart, and that heart made him change the way that he looked at his finances for himself, God, and others. See, question, is my standard of living growing as fast as my income is? The more money I make, the more money I keep, spend, or give to God and others. See, the heart test is, where is your treasure? What do you love the most? Because here's what I've found out over the years. The more you love money, the less you love and value people with it. So if you're a boss, do you pay your employees well? The DoorDash guy comes to the door. You give him a dollar or you give him what he deserves? How about your church? How about your friends? How about those who are in need? Are you aware of those needs? Do you think about other people? And I'm not talking just at Thanksgiving and Christmas, as nice as that is. But are you a generous person? Does your heart all year long demonstrate by the way that you use your finances what your real treasure is? See, James says, you want to take a spiritual EKG? Take a look at how you view your money. But that's not the only one. Be careful, James says, you could have a diseased heart. But let me talk about the other side. It's not enough just not to have a diseased heart. You need to have a devoted heart. And so he flips the coin over and says, let me not talk about the oppressors. Let me talk for a moment to the people in my congregation who are being oppressed. You know, the Bible says, and you probably know this verse, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, guard, military term, guard your heart with all vigilance, 
For from it spring flows the springs of life. In other words, here's what wisdom of Proverbs says. You know what's essential about your life? The attitudes of your heart. See, if you have a nonfiction faith, you're going to have a spiritually healthy heart. One that will be able to fight off heart disease. Fight off. It's not that you're never tempted. No, fight off the love of money and materialism and possession. Possession. It'll fight and be able to fight that off and live a life where God and giving money to him and to his ministry and his church and to other people far outweigh and come first in your life. Now, let me ask you. How or what does a devoted heart look like, especially when you're facing suffering and mistreatment like these people were? You know what it looks like? Here's the word four times, patient. It's in verse 7 twice, verse 8 once, and verse 10 once. Patience. And, and, and watch, equally so in the text is the word brothers. And so here's what I put together. That if you want to have a patient heart, which is devoted to God, which has the right view of money and has the right response to suffering, you have to do it in community. That's why he uses so often three times, brothers, brothers, brothers. You know why? It is very hard by yourself to do these things. Do you know why we come to church? One of the reasons. You know why we have small groups and emphasize it so much? And by the way, you ought to be in one. You know why? Because it's much better and easier to live the Christian life in community than it is all by yourself. Today, if you're watching on the television or at home, let me tell you this. It is way better to be here than you where you are. And I know that you have, some of you have to be there. But can I tell you this? You cannot properly live out your Christian life unless you have community of Christians around you. We need each other to get through the suffering. We need each other to respond correctly. We need each other to respond correctly to the difficulties and the sufferings of life. See, so what does it look like? It looks like people who are learning to battle in patience. How many of you consider yourself to never have a problem with patience? Okay, good, because you're in church. You didn't lie. appreciate that. We tend to think of impatience with being impatient with people or with red lights or with internet speed, with customer service, unless you go to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> impatient with spouses, children, which you may have already done before you came to church. Bosses, never with pastors. I get that. But we don't often think of being impatient with God, do we? Listen to what the text says. Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He says again, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Oh, the judge stands at the door. See, can I tell you theologically, your eschatology will determine what kind of heart you have. Eschatology meaning, if you, see, if you don't believe that the judge is coming, like lost people don't, if you don't believe in that, see, then you'll indulge yourself. You'll live in luxury. You'll give a little bit sometimes to some charitable cause and think that you're actually generous. See, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he is and he's coming and you're under judgment and you're, you're under severe warning, if you don't believe any of that, see, it won't make a difference in how you use your money. But here's what, here's what James says. But if you believe that Jesus is the judge, that he's the king, that he's returning, and that you're going to stand before him today, it will make a huge difference. 
especially when it comes to how you respond to suffering. The word patient is a compound Greek word, macrothumos. You know what it means? Long-tempered. Long-tempered. It's not the person who goes from zero to 60 in two seconds. There are two words in the original Greek language for anger. One is orge, which means a settled, kind of like I'm angry on the inside, but you may not know it. And it kind of just seethes. You ever been that? You get so angry and you're angry for a long time and you keep it inside. You kind of, I would call it clam up. There's a clam up anger and then there's a blow up anger. And that's this word. This is the volcanic eruption kind of anger. Here's what he says. He says that when you know that Jesus is coming, and even though you're mistreated, and even though you're suffering, here's what he says. You have a long blaze. You don't blow your top, because blowing up means that you've come to the end of your patience. And as Christians, we know that patience means this, delayed gratification. In the text, look at verse 8, he gives the illustration of a farmer. If you lived in Israel, and I've been there, it's a very arid, desert-like country, a lot of rocks and sand. So they had two rains, only two seasons of rain, a little bit every year. Once, I would say, in the spring and once in the fall. So they would plant in the spring, they would get the rain, and if they're going to have any crops and feed themselves and do all the things they need to do in their country, they are dependent on the latter rains, the early and the latter rains. But in between is a long, long, hot summer and I mean hot. So if you're a farmer, you wait, you get the first rain, and you're waiting and you're praying and you're waiting and you're praying for the second rain to come. David Pallison, who is a Christian counselor, says, beware of false utopias. And you know why I'm putting this in right now? False utopias are what you begin to think that you deserve while you're waiting. False utopias have this mindset. You work really hard to do the right things and then life doesn't go the way you want it to because God's schedule is not your schedule. And it sounds like this. I thought I would have gotten a raise by now. I thought I would have got a new job by now. I thought... I would be married by now. I thought I would be pregnant by now. See, delayed gratification. See, that's the thing. See, there are early rains and you're waiting on, and in between is this terribly arid, hot summer heat in your life. We call it trials. And you're trying to figure out, hey, God, your schedule isn't my schedule, and my schedule isn't yours, and God, it's difficult, see. And we begin to wonder, metaphorically in our minds, is it going to rain? I don't see any clouds in the sky. I mean, it's getting time. If it doesn't rain soon, we're not going to have a harvest. And you begin thinking about that in your life. And you're going through struggles, and you're really hurt, and somebody has really hurt you, and you're suffering, you've been mistreated. Things have gone really, really, really wrong. And it's so hot. Is that you this morning? Say, Pastor Walker, you don't know how long I've been waiting for the rain. And every day I get up and look in life, and there's no, not a cloud in the sky. And I'm beginning to wonder whether the rain's going to come at all, if ever. Here's what he says you need, 
Be patient. Ready? Have this kind of heart instead. Establish your heart. You know what the English word establish in Greek is? It's the word we get steroids. He says, you know how you do it? You know how you suffer? You know how you wait in between the rains in your life? You know how you do it? You have to put an injection of steroids, spiritual steroids, right into your heart. It's the word we get strength, it's support, it's the ideal or the opposite of weakness. He goes, what you can't have is a weak heart when you're going through suffering. You got to have a strong heart. You have to have establishment. And here's how you establish it. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is judge. He's going to take care of the people who make me suffer. He's coming back. And listen, 5.4 says, he hears the cries of those who are being, he, he, he hears you. He listens. When you pray, it doesn't fall on deaf ears if you're his child. He says, what you need to have, child of mine, is a strong heart. How do you keep your heart strong? Wretch, no greed, no grumbling. And in the text he says, oh, watch the grumbling. See it in the verses? No complaining. It's, it's easy, isn't it, to take your frustrations out on others? See, your false utopia is at your job and the position you should have and the money. You come home and you take it out on your, on your wife and your kids because your boss doesn't do what you want him to do and you're so frustrating and you take it out on other people. Israel in the wilderness. God's schedule wasn't theirs. See, they needed water, they wanted food and they weren't getting it and they were thirsty and they wanted to go back to Egypt and you know what they did? They griped and complained and grumbled. Is that you? See, it's possible on Thanksgiving that could be you. God says, seriously, and looking back at that story, if you read Paul's version of it in 1 Corinthians 10, 10, he says, and neither complain as some of those ones complained and grumbled and were destroyed of the destroyer. See the warning, how serious it is, the kind of heart you have? He says you were destroyed by it. And so he says, you know what you need to have a patient heart? You need to have the injection of steroids that I can give to you in your heart. And how do you get, you know what, you need positive examples. And so in verse 11 he says, I mean verses 10, 11, see look at the example of the prophets. Look at Job. And we need people. We need people. Jason's up here telling this morning and I'm listening to him. See, he kept praying to his father-in-law, praying for his father-in-law, witnessing to him. He was patient and God's schedule wasn't his because his dad professed Christ as his savior just a few days before he died. Ask, ask Jackie Sensi because I'm whispering the gospel over him in his hospital bed two days before he died. And I, and I said, do you want to pray and trust him? And I talked to him so many times. I'd been in his house when he was eating breakfast and he's watching, he's reading his newspaper and I'm telling him the gospel and he has it up so he can't even see my face. Two days before he died, Pastor Walker, I need the Lord. And he prayed the prayer in his weak possible state he could be in and trusted Christ to be a Savior. See, God's time and schedule is not ours, is it? And we need positive examples of people who are going through difficulties like Job and the prophets who suffered but still obeyed God. And that's why he says, listen, when you consider these people, listen to this, consider them blessed. You know where the real happiness is, James says? You know where the beatitude is? It is not in God changing his schedule to meet yours. It's that you are obeying him and loving him and treasuring him when his schedule doesn't match yours and you still wait on him in obedience to his word.
Samuel didn't. I mean, Saul didn't. If you read 1 Samuel 13, Saul was told by Samuel, wait for me, and as the priest, when I get there, I'll make the sacrifice, and that'll give God the glory. So Saul waited and waited and waited, like you are right now. And he waited, and Samuel didn't show up. And by the time they needed to do the sacrifice, he still wasn't there. And so here's what King Saul said. I'll just take things into my own hand. And although I'm the king and I'm not supposed to do it this way, I'll make the sacrifice. And he did. And of course, you know exactly when, he's, when it's all over, Samuel shows up. And he says, what are you doing? And Samuel tries, Saul tries to explain it away. But here's the part. He says, today God's kingdom will be torn away from you. Why did Saul lose the kingdom in patience? He took things into his own hands. And when you do, this morning, you'll find this. You'll find it easy to cut corners. You'll take things into your own. I don't really need to give to God. I don't really need to come to church. I don't really need to do this. I show up on Sunday. That's enough. See, I begin to cut corners in my relationship with God. The end will start justifying the means. And God says, I'll take it away. Why? Ready for this statement? Impatience is cosmic treason. How so, Pastor Walker? Because when you are impatient with God, here's what you're saying to him. God, I'm going to overthrow the universe. Not the whole universe, but my part of it. You can tell everybody else what to do, but I'm going to tell you when to be here in my life, what to do in my life, and how to do it. So when you're impatient and you put things in your own hand, that's why God ripped the kingdom away from Saul. You know why? Because it was treason. Saul really wasn't king. God was. Do you get that? Patience takes the crown off your head and puts it on to God's. And let me tell you this. If you don't have patience with God, you will not have patience with people. I will tell you this, your patience with others is dependent on your patience with God. Why? Because God's primary way of telling you what his schedule for your life is, is through other people. See, God uses people in your life to tell you, this is when I want you to be doing this, and this is how I want you to, and where I want you to be doing it. But see, if you don't have a patient heart, one that's been given the injection of God's steroids, see, you'll miss it. And so the Bible text ends with, see, you've seen Job and you've seen the end or the purpose or the teleos. See, see, God has a purpose. But if you don't wait, if you don't have patience, if you're not saying, God, you do with my life, which, see, you'll miss the purpose. You'll miss it. And you'll miss the mercy and compassion that goes along with it. Say, Pastor Walker, I don't know. It's so hard to wait. I know it is. Think of Jesus, who Hebrews 12 says, endured the cross, endured it. He had patience. And by the way, you have patience in your sin. He has patience for your sin. See, he endured suffering that you'll never know and I will never experience. He endured it and he didn't deserve any of it. So if you say, Pastor Walker, how can I have this kind of heart? Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. And pray him, Lord, give me your heart. Let's pray.
With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we're going to close in just a moment and with a song and then we'll dismiss to our small groups. But I just want to pray for you this morning. If you're here and you would say, Pastor Walker, if you're not a believer or you say that you are, but you know that the way that you handle your money, it doesn't indicate having a devoted heart, but a diseased heart. If you're concerned about that, would you come and see me, set up an appointment with one of our pastors or me, come and, and, and ask for help. God wants to change your heart and he wants to show you how. If you're a Christian this morning though, can I ask you this? Do you have that kind of devoted heart? Is your life and your heart, does it, is it characterized by patience? Patience with God, patience with other people. Is that what you are? That's really what you are? Especially when you respond to the sufferings and difficulties in your life. Say, God, maybe this morning, say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Just real quickly, pray for me. I need to listen to this EKG this morning, spiritually. I need to do some heart health examination spiritually in my life. Pray for me. Would you just raise your hand and I'll do that just quietly. Real, put up real quick and put it back down. And I'll pray for you here in these closing moments. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Father, do some heart work in our lives today. Change us from the inside out that we might have the right response to riches and what to do with them and how to treat people with them. And we also might respond rightly to suffering when your schedule is not ours. Help us to learn to honor you through waiting. And we'll praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.